This is Guidepost, a new podcast from the publishers of The CRISPR Journal. Hello, I'm Kevin Davis, executive editor of The CRISPR Journal, covering the cutting edge of CRISPR research, technology, and gene editing. Check out our debut issue at crisperjournal.com. In a moment, my exclusive interview with Rodolphe Barangu, the chief editor of The CRISPR Journal and a leading figure in CRISPR circles. This episode of Guidepost is brought to you by Synthigo, whose vision is to turn biology into an information science with the ultimate goal of dramatically extending the healthy human lifespan by providing genome engineering solutions. Learn more at synthigo.com. In November 2017, Rodolf Barangu was appointed editor-in-chief of the CRISPR Journal. Rodolf has been at the forefront of the CRISPR field for more than a decade, and in 2016 shared Canada's top scientific prize, the Gairdner Prize, with four other CRISPR luminaries. He's a professor of food science and probiotic research at North Carolina State University, has a number of entrepreneurial activities and a long-standing interest in advancing uh, the CRISPR community through books, conferences, and other media projects. Our wide-ranging conversation took place recently in the spectacular James B. Hunt Library on the North Carolina State campus. Rodolphe Barangu, welcome to Guidepost. Hi, Kevin. Uh, delighted you could join us uh, for this uh, this episode. Uh, really, for two reasons. One, of course, you're the founding editor in chief of the CRISPR Journal, um, and uh, we'll maybe start and finish with talking a little bit about uh, why you took on that uh, that uh, that role. Um, but. The main reason for bringing you in is because you've had a front row seat uh, throughout really the this explosion in CRISPR gene editing research for at least a decade, probably a little bit longer. Uh, so you've seen and done things that most people haven't. So I'm sure we'll get some interesting stories from you, uh, observations not only about how the field has developed, but where it can go. Uh, you have a number of uh, not just academic, but commercial interests. And so there's a lot of ground to try to cover in, in a relatively short space of time. Um, so you've just really put to bed the first issue of the CRISPR Journal. How, what, what made you want to take on this role in addition to all of the other things that you've got going on? I think it's a great time for the field. It's a very exciting field for many reasons. Um, there's a very diversified set of business interests, scientific interests, societal interests, and, and important things at stake here. It's a very important time for the field uh, to move on to the next stage, the next chapter of the CRISPR story. Yeah. Um, and, and there is no true avenue yeah. for the whole CRISPR community uh, to sit down and have a unified voice and or a, a platform mm. to use where you can cover everything that's related to the field, hence mm. our hashtag, hashtag everything CRISPR. <laughs> there's so many things going on in the field, and there's so much information coming out, yeah. and so many different things that are compelling and timely and interesting or relevant. Yeah. Uh, that though the media at large is doing a fantastic job covering CRISPR as a whole, there's not one platform whereby the readership and or the authors and or the community can come in and weigh in, uh, not just by contributing scientific papers and studies and research, but also opine yeah. and provide their own perspective and, and share the wisdom and their opinions yeah. and maybe not always answer questions, but we ask the questions right. that, that it would all behoove us to address right. as scientists, as consumers, right. as individuals, as academics, as investors, 
as parents and patients. Right. And, and I think the, the CRISPR journal provides this very unique challenge, yeah. but at the same time, very intriguing opportunity yeah. to, uh, to serve not just the scientific community, but you know, everyone who has a stake in, in CRISPR as a theme and as a technology. Right. So you're a professor of food science and probiotic research here. We're at the campus of NC State, North Carolina State University. Um, people have already picked up from your accent that you're not from these parts originally. So tell us just how, what brought you to the US, where you came from and, and so on. So I, I used to be French, you know, born and raised in France uh, yeah. a while ago. Yeah. I did some of my studies there uh -huh. and, you know, spent my early, you know, uh, formative years in Paris, yeah. which I enjoyed very much, fantastic food and cultures in many ways. Yeah. Um, but my, uh, my scientific interest, you know, pushed me to go overseas and, and curiosity and combination thereof. And coming from a big city, I, I didn't want to go to New York or Boston and San Francisco. Or Chicago or others, they're yeah. great for sure. Yeah. But I wanted to experience something different. Okay. You know, do things a little bit different. That's what I do scientifically. That's what I do okay. financially. That's what I do professionally, <laughs> scientifically. And um, so, you know, North Carolina was on the list of a few things that, you know, checked a few entries. Like okay. you have to have a nice airport, you know, a city big enough, but there's yeah. exciting things going on. But no traffic and nice weather yeah. and, and opportunities. Okay. And NC State as a university or North Carolina as a yeah. state itself uh, afford all those things. Yeah. You know, it's like a hidden gem on the east coast of the of the US. Um, and I fell in love with, with the state. Yeah. You know, its sight, its view, its smells, its people, its yeah. food. And then I fell in love with, with science yeah. that is occurring here. And, and that's why eventually, you know, I got my, my master's and PhD here. Right. Moved on to the industry for 10 years, you know, okay. in Wisconsin and looked at something different. Okay. And then, uh, and then came back home and uh, changed my citizenship and, you know, came back to my allegiance to NC State and, <laughs> uh, and took all my interest in genetics and genomics and okay. biology and molecular biology and engineering and microbiology. Uh, apply to foods because in the end everybody likes food. Yeah, food is great. Food yeah. is tasty. Food is compelling. Food is enjoyable. Sometimes maybe too much. Sometimes not enough. <laughs> um, and also, food has a very important role to play on the continuum of health. Right. And so that's why I study food and, and probiotics okay. in particular. So you got your PhD from here at NC State, and then you went in directly into industry. That is correct. Okay. So, so my uh, part of my PhD was actually financed by uh, by a company okay. at the time called Denisco. Before that, it was Rodia Foods, and it was eventually bought by DuPont. Okay. And now Dow DuPont. Right. Dow Pont. We'll see in due time what name they choose. Um, so I always had that exposure to the reality of, of doing science for a specific purpose. Okay. Uh, in this particular case, developing next-generation probiotics that, you know, make people's intestine healthier. Yeah. Uh, and then started cultures that enable the industry to ferment, you know, milk into cheese or yogurt. That, that's how my journey with microbiology started. Uh, you know, maybe in the spirit of a, a pasteur to do fermentation, so to speak, so a, a French touch there for sure. Yeah, there's a connection. <laughs> um, and then I was always intrigued by the industry. Yeah. There's a very strong impetus for focusing and delivering, you know, scientific yeah. results that have an application. Yeah. Um, so I went there for 10 years. I had an excellent, enjoyable, uh, productive career at DuPont. Um, and then 10 years in, you know, with the CRISPR craze, um, poised for great success down the line right and then a, an appetite to to not just serve a for-profit company but maybe serve a scientific community right and consumers on a broader base so help us put the back to academia help us put the pieces together you uh denisco is a french company it was a danish danish, danish company danish co danish co got it danish company owned 
by DuPont? Now owned by, now owned by DuPont. DuPont. But you are based in Wisconsin. Madison, Wisconsin, okay. the Cheeseheads. This is where, you know. Uh, it all makes the, sense now, yeah. <laughs> right. A lot of the dairy land. I think America's dairy land is what's on the, on the license plate. Yeah. We'll get to that later. Okay. On. <laughs> um, so there's a lot of cows, there's a lot of farms, there's a lot of milk. Right. And uh, historically, the sites you know, I was at yeah. uh, had been involved in the development, genesis, and formulation of starter cultures, which are, right. you know, bacterial cultures that people yeah. use to turn, you know, liquid milk into, you know, solid cheese okay. or semi-soft cheese right. or yogurt or sour cream or combinations okay. thereof. Uh, that's where the milk is, so that's where the industry was. Okay. Yeah? And the site that was at had opened up in some way, some way or shape in 1906. Okay. And then I joined the company shortly before, you know, their, uh, their 100-year anniversary. Yeah. Um, and then the site is still there, and, and Wisconsin right. plays a very important role in the dairy world, right. uh, for sure domestically in the U.S., but also internationally, and that's why companies like Denisco, like DuPont, uh, or others actually have a very uh, yeah. important, significant business and manufacturing and research footprint in the Midwest, because uh, it's not just corn, there's also a lot of milk. Right. So when did you first hear about CRISPR? Can you remember? So I actually came across CRISPR before I heard the name or the word CRISPR. Okay. Um, so we were working on, you know, genomic sequences and assembling genomes of, you know, starter cultures and probiotics. Um, and very inconveniently, those repeated elements, right? CRISPR stands for cluster regular interspatial palindromic repeats. Those repeated DNA elements are very hard to assemble and put together in the genomic puzzle of assembling bacterial genomes. Uh, so actually, when I was in graduate school, you know, we worked on a, on a very important probiotic. And my first CRISPR paper, my first encounter with CRISPR, didn't have CRISPR in it. Uh, we called it at the time a spider space okay. interspersed direct repeat, which was one of the many names that CRISPR had. Yeah. But CRISPR obviously is catchy and cool and unique. So that's the one acronym that stood the test of time. Uh, but I came across a CRISPR sequence long before I knew what it was. Okay. Let alone what it did. Yeah. Um, and then in my first paper, fittingly, my first CRISPR paper didn't have CRISPR in it. Uh-huh. It, it had spider in it. <laughs> Much like my first CRISPR patent wasn't a CRISPR patent per se, it was a spider patent. Okay. Um, you know, we'll delve into that as, yeah. as, as the audience sees fit. Um, so I came across it before I actually heard about it. Okay. And eventually, you know, reading upon the literature, the early literature, Thinking back all the way to 1987 with Ishino et al., yep. uh, whom the audience you know, should for, for sure yeah. check. And then eventually the, the 2002 baptism yes. of the acronyms, both SPIDER by Jensen et al. and CRISPR by Jensen et al. Right. And then eventually, you know, around 2005, this is when the, the community with Francisco yeah. and Mojica, Marcel, yeah. Francisco Mojica and, and others featured in our issue number one, yeah. by the way. That's true. And our last podcast. Um, uh, that's when the acronym really became more adopted okay. by the community. Right. And it had like other cumbersome names like SRSR and LTTR and right. others that were not equally as cool or descriptive. Right. And, and, and CRISPR came in kind of like after the fact right. in my encounter with those very peculiar idiosyncratic genetic elements. So tell us a bit more about uh, why CRISPR was relevant for your, now by this point, commercial activities and trying to make sure that your bacterial cultures weren't just decimated by by some phage that seems to come out of nowhere um 
leading up to this uh, now landmark paper that you had in, in science in 2007 with Philippe Horvath and colleagues. So tell us up what brought, brought you up to that point. Yeah, so it, it wasn't a straight a straight line I whatsoever, yeah. right? So so the first was coming across, you know, those CRISPRs. Right. Um, and as we sequence genomes of bacteria, um, you know, we had to go through to assemble them and put them together and piece them together. So that, okay. that's how I came along. That's how it came about for me. Um, and then at the same time, my, my dear colleague and collaborator of, of over a decade now, Philippe Horvat, um, uh, and I were using those um, as genotyping bases. Okay. So they're very peculiar, hypervariable, loci in yeah. the genomes of bacteria. Yeah. Uh, and you can take two cousins, you know, two siblings. Yeah. Uh, or, or, you know, various level of relatedness of, of any two starter cultures of Streptococcus thermophilus, which is, you know, the key ingredient in yogurt manufacturing yeah. and fermentation. Um, and we were able to use those very peculiar genetic loci to tell what strain was what and where it came from and where it had been and how we compared and contrasted with friends. So actually, that was our first patent back in 04, where really we used CRISPRs against spiders at the time. Uh, to type genetically bacteria. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until, you know, later on in 2005, uh, concurrent with discoveries of others like Francisco and mm -hmm. Russell and others, mm -hmm. um, that the realization came that some of those elements, you know, when you blast them, when you search them, you yep. try to tell where they come from or what they do, uh, showed homology not just to other bacterial CRISPR loci, but actually viral sequences. Right. And of course, in the industry, we knew from DuPont that a major problem for the manufacturing of dairy products yeah. is the occurrence of bacterial viruses right. called bacteriophage. Yeah. Since they used to be French, you should say bacteriophage. <laughs> um, and, and we were sequencing those phages as well. Yeah. Okay. And that was one of the eureka moments yeah. of realizing that the sequences in between the conserved repeats of our CRISPR yeah. were actually matching viral sequences. Right. So if you fast forward, you know, a couple of months, yeah. right? Very exciting, very weird, very peculiar, yeah. but it's, it's computational only. The more strains we sequenced, the more it became obvious that those loci evolve over time. Okay. And we went back to some of the older cultures from Dupont. Yeah. So before we did experiments, which we went back in time, went to the freezers. Yeah. And sequenced more and more strains. Yeah. And we unearthed a few strains for which we could tell that the CRISPR loci had evolved over time yeah. and had acquired seemingly, right. visibly, novel spatial sequences. Right. And because he has one more and one than, than his cousin. Yeah. And then the sequences that were acquired or seemingly acquired in right. those loci right. were matching phages that we were using in the lab. So that set up, you know, the hypothesis, right? So now we're doing like yeah. science for the sake of science. Yeah. The hypothesis that there may be a link between the CRISPR locus yeah. and viruses. Right. So, so we embarked in a series of three experiments that led to this 2007 uh, a paper that, that we published at DuPont with my colleague Philippe and others. Yeah. The whole team worked for sure. Yeah. Um, and, and the first thing we did is what happens when you expose a strain to a virus? Right. And we saw the immune system, which we now know is immunity, yeah. activate itself yeah. and pick up new pieces of DNA from the viral genome and integrate them into the CRISPR locus mm. in a particular order. Mm. So it's iterative acquisition mm -hmm. of spacers, mm -hmm. pieces of DNA mm -hmm. from the viral genome that was used to do that upon the cell becoming resistant. Right. 
So it advanced the hypothesis that there may be a link between the spacer content and phage resistance. Right. So the second series of experiment was genetic engineering, yeah. uh, which we did in, in Wisconsin. Yeah. At the time, it was the only lab at DuPont that was allowed to do this kind of research. Uh-huh. Experiments I actually did myself. Like, <laughs> at the time, I was Stop still on the bench. Right? <laughs> and then what we did is, is by genetic engineering 1.0, right, like old yeah. school, you know, before before the age of genome editing with yeah. Whisper, fittingly so. Uh, we show that when you add a spacer, you gain resistance. When you remove a spacer, you lose resistance. Mm-hmm. And maybe my favorite experiment of all time, when you swap the two immune systems between two strains, mm-hmm. you swap their resistance to mm-hmm. 70s sensitivities to two viruses. Yeah. And that was essentially the proof that there's a direct link between yeah. the CRISPR genotype and the antiviral phenotype. Yeah. And then the third experiment that we did, because we knew we were, we were going to submit that at some point to some you know uh, journal that would get scientifically reviewed, like the CRISPR journal, um, and we knew that next to those peculiar CRISPR loci, mm-hmm. you know, there were associated sequences called CRISPR associated sequences CAS genes. Mm-hmm. And so what we did is we, we knocked out a couple of our CAS genes. Mm-hmm. And this is where sometimes you have to be lucky, right? There's serendipitous. Mm-hmm. We're working on type 2s. We didn't, didn't have names at the time. We worked mm-hmm. on Cas9. It wasn't named Cas9 mm-hmm. at the time. Mm-hmm. That's why some of the, the readership misses it, but that's fine. Um, and, and we knocked out the two biggest genes. Mm-hmm. Cas9 and CSN2. And we show that when you inactivate Cas9, you lose the immune potential. Right. right. And when you knock out CSN2, you retain the potential that exists, but you lose the ability to acquire new spacers. Okay. So putting those three observations yeah. together, yeah. Uh, Philippe and I and our colleagues yeah. uh, packaged this you know, yeah. manuscript uh, that showed that essentially the biological yeah. function of CRISPR-Cas systems yeah. Uh, is to provide adaptive immunity in bacteria yeah. against viruses. So that was a decade ago, over a decade ago, that that paper was published in Science. What was the, what has been the commercial impact of that discovery on cheese, dairy manufacturing, not only at Dupont but worldwide? It's been huge. Yeah, I mean, so so, and this is why you know sometimes people don't appreciate the amount of work that goes in the industry, uh, let alone in the food industry. Yeah. And, and immediately, you know, upon realizing the potential that CRISPR-Cas systems had, you know, to protect important industrial cultures mm. against phage attacks, mm. um, you know, we obviously filed a patent back in 05, converted in 06, commercialized it, you know, shortly thereafter, um, and then worked on developing natural immune events mm. in those starter cultures mm. by taking what the culture that makes the best cheese or that make yogurt mm. will get hammered in the field by different phages globally. Those best cultures go around the whole globe you know, mm. to ferment, you know, cheese into yogurt. Mm. Um, and um, and what we would do is take our best culture exposed to a phage, mm-hmm. let nature run its course, mm-hmm. let the strain vaccinate itself mm-hmm. against this va- this virus, right. and then take another virus problematic and do it again. Yeah. Okay. And take another virus from it and do it again. And in the scope of about two weeks, you know, depending on where you do it and how you do it and who does yeah. it, at DuPont, yeah. uh, you know, we would get super immunized, yeah. robust strains with enhanced functionality and longevity in right. the field. Right. And then, you know, as a side note, you know, since 2011, so now we're, you know, pre-age of CRISPR for yeah. the public, yeah. right? Since 2011, 100% of all commercial cultures... Yeah. For that purpose, so pretty much in the whole industry, yeah. you know, just by DuPont and you know, others to some extent, um, have been enhanced using CRISPR screening. Right. right. And people have consumed since 2011 yeah. 
whether you have, you know, a yogurt, yep. whether you have a bite of cheese, mm-hmm. and whether you put that on your nachos or your pizza <laughs> or your cheeseburger, whether you're in Beijing or Paris yeah. or London yeah. or New York or Buenos Aires, yeah. uh, you are consuming a fermented dairy product that yeah. was manufactured using a CRISPR yeah. and starter culture. Yeah. And, and it's been lasting, you know, and now we're in year seven. Yeah. Of, uh, of the CRISPR era for you know, commercial dairy fermentation. It's, it's been very, very productive, very successful. So no doubt about the influence in, uh, of your discovery in that field. But in the, in the years post your science paper in 2007, did you sense that CRISPR was becoming more important in other fields? Or did, did the events of 2012 and the use of CRISPR now, the adaptation of it as a as CRISPR-Cas9 as a gene editing tool, did that did that come out of the blue? You know, not only for most people like me, but you know, for people even who've been you know, leading in the field. Yeah. So, so having had the, the privilege, right, front seat, front row seat of seeing CRISPR become what it has become yeah. for you know thirteen years now, yeah. uh, you know, we knew it was cool. Yeah. We knew it was interesting. We knew it was relevant. You could use it for genotyping yeah. and vaccination and cutting viral DNA, cutting plasmid DNA, uh, and transplant those systems in other bacteria and everything. Yeah. But, but really, there's two events that propelled CRISPR uh, to, to the era that we now know we are in. Yeah. Uh, and the first was the work by Jennifer and colleagues, right, back in 2012, which I call a tipping point. Okay. Doudna, Charpentier, and colleagues. Et al. Martin Genetic, and yes, Christoph Schilinski, and others, mm-hmm. right? Um, all, all grades of scientists, right? But the, the PI shall get the credit as they should. Um, they show that you could take those CRISPR-Cas systems... And, and repackage them into portable two-component molecular machines, mm-hmm. right? Molecular scalpels, mm-hmm. uh, molecular scissors mm-hmm. uh, that can be reprogrammed and mm-hmm. used to cut not just viral DNA or plasmid mm-hmm. DNA, but essentially any DNA you want. Mm-hmm. And that, that 2012 study, in my mind, in my humble opinion, was a tipping point that showed that you could repurpose this cool, idiosyncratic, mm-hmm. unknown, interesting, intriguing valuable but not revolutionary as of yet yeah. immune system in bacteria right. and turn that into a tool right that people can use readily in the lab to cut dna right so that was that was part one right 2012 and then to me uh, 2013 uh you know the work by fong right fong Zhang and, and george church and yeah. others like Luciano marafini and jin su kim yeah. came shortly thereafter yeah were concurrent in the race, but didn't quite win, you know, at the very front of the Finnish photo. In terms photo. of pu- publishing, but yeah. In terms of publishing. At least some of those were submitted at the same time, but I can't talk about that on the record. Um, uh, those people actually showed that you could use those molecular machines uh, to cut DNA in vivo in cells mm-hmm. and then trigger the DNA repair machinery mm-hmm. to correct it right. and then drive to genome editing. And that's right. why I think Fong and George... Um, you know, kind of opened right. up the era right. of the genome editing world right. using CRISPR. Right. So, so they democratized it yeah. more so they invented it. Yeah. Uh, but they, they showed the proof of concept, which was yeah. you know, revolutionary at the time, yeah. without a doubt, yeah. that you could use this single guide technology yeah. developed by Jennifer and Manuel and colleagues uh, to do genome editing in, in human cells. And it was that, a- that changed the world. Of course. And it was around this time that you left your industry role to come back to North Carolina State, your academic uh, home. So in order to, I 
I'm presuming, but you'll fill me in here, you know, more academic freedom to do things that you want to do. But at the same time, in the subsequent years, you've also uh, taken advantage of this new, amazing new tool that we have to to get involved in some new commercial efforts of your own as well. So talk about not only what you're doing academically, but perhaps one or two of your commercial endeavors also. Oh, absolutely. So, so you know, I love working in industry for sure. Yeah. You know, you 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 can make tangible product development contributions yeah. solve problems in the industry and the like. Uh, uh, but in the end, you know, at heart, you know, I think I'm an academic, mm -hmm. I'm a scientist, um, and, and I want to serve the world, not just one shareholder base, mm -hmm. and educate the next generation of scientists, many of whom uh, will read the CRISPR journal and enjoy everything we have to show, and it will be featured in our in our pages for sure. Mm -hmm. um, so so I wanted to, to teach and have freedom to research, mm -hmm. and degrees of freedom may be not affordable by, you know, corporate agenda, and that's mm -hmm. fine. Mm -hmm. so, so I left industry for that reason. Uh, came back to academia, worked at a state institution, I'm a government employee of the great state of North Carolina. Uh, but it also, you know, uh, affords me the freedom uh, on the side to be engaged in, you know, business development and mm -hmm. entrepreneur and, mm -hmm. and startup companies and the like. Mm -hmm. So, so I've been involved in a number of companies to date. Mm -hmm. uh, and the first one was Caribou, mm -hmm. um, you know, the first CRISPR company founded in the world by Jennifer and Rachel Owens Dabin, and, yeah. and others, and Martin Jinnick as well. Okay. Um, and, and that's a platform company, you know, uh, aiming at unleashing the power of, of CRISPR-Cas systems. Okay. Um, and and they've, they've grown really well. You know, it's like a West Coast startup, very dynamic, very attractive, very interesting, uh, great leadership, great science, great platform, and they develop tools to enable others to do genome editing and various applications. Mm -hmm. And then out of, uh, of Caribou, Spawn Italia Therapeutics mm -hmm. in Cambridge, right? Mm -hmm. And maybe the, the heart in many ways of the, the upstream therapeutic discovery hotbed of research, you know, in the world, not just the U.S. Uh, so, so in Cambridge and, and Italia came about as an idea. And within two years, you went from, you know, concept that Ness Birmingham mm -hmm. and, and colleagues uh, came about at Atlas Ventures mm -hmm. and then, you know, was publicly traded, you know, 23 months later on the NASDAQ. Yeah. And they are advancing, much like, you know, Editas and CRISPR therapeutics as yeah. well. Uh, CRISPR-based technologies for genome editing yeah. to develop gene therapies that yeah. will cure genetic diseases yeah. in humans. They're much less well-known than those, arguably the big three, we can call them. Um, you have another startup actually homegrown here in North Carolina called Locus. Tell That's us right. just a little bit about that. So Locus Biosciences. So so what we're doing there, again, my, my third, so I want you to learn a couple of times, you know, you, you, you gain an appetite for entrepreneurship for sure, and you understand what you have to do to be successful to some extent. Uh -huh. So what we're doing at Locus is repurposing CRISPR-Cas machines not to do genome editing in eukaryotes, yeah. but rather uh, to do self-targeting and killing in prokaryotes. Okay. And we use a version of CRISPR called CRISPR-Cas3, okay. which is an exonuclease that shreds DNA rather than an endonuclease that nicks DNA. Right. Um, and then we use that to essentially specifically reprogram CRISPR-Cas molecular machines okay. to shred the DNA of pathogenic bacteria okay. and address the grand challenge of antibiotic resistance yes. and next-generation sequence-specific yeah. antibiotics. So we do that for infectious disease right now primarily. Things like E. coli yeah. and C. diff and Pseudomonas. Um, but in the age of the microbiology renaissance with microbiomes, yeah. I think there's also a lot of potential down the line to alter with precision the composition of microbiomes to eradicate the, the bad guys, yeah. right? The bacteria that the public is so concerned about that may be responsible for disease. Mm. 
Uh, and then at some time, at the same time, concurrently with probiotics or mm. other formulations and blends thereof, uh, to rebalance the microbiome towards a more healthy state. Mm. And we can do that for humans, we can do that for animals, we can do that for plants, we can do that for soil. Um, you know, microbes have a lot of beneficial role beyond the pathogenic potential, and we aim at developing you know, next-generation yeah. therapeutics to address antibiotic resistance, yeah. but also and cure disease, but also you know, rebalance microbiome towards a healthy yeah. state. We have a great article, great commentary in the debut issue of the CRISPR journal from Jacob Shirkow, a professor of law at NY Law School, New York Law School, on the CRISPR patent landscape. And um, I'm curious, you've had a you've, you know, front row seat in some of these discussions as well. I'm wondering, there's all still a lot of discussion and, and legal wranglings about about patent discovery and ownership in this space. Do you feel this is a distraction? Is this hurting the field or innovation uh, more, more generally? So, so I don't think it's hampering innovation whatsoever. Okay. I think on the contrary, the value thereof, the potential of that technology is accelerating yeah. innovation and driving people to be more creative, uh -huh. to engineer non-natural variants of CRISPR, to discover new types of CRISPR-Cas yeah. machines, yeah. to tinker with them and play with them and make them better, meaner, leaner. Yeah more specific, more efficient, more powerful. Um, but from a business standpoint, a strategic standpoint, you know, I think it's hampering companies from making good decisions or making good deals or feeling that they have the freedom to operate that they need to harness, unleash, mm -hmm. and commercialize that technology. Um, but but in, my, in my humble opinion, those things will get solved in due time. Yeah. Right? I went to business school business minds shall prevail in the end mm -hmm. and some egos will be put aside and maybe the reputation of you know you know star academic organizations and universities will be put aside for the benefit of mankind mm -hmm. and then people will be unable to develop next generation drugs and move on mm -hmm. um, but but really I think what the drama about the IP says and tells us mm. is it reflects the potential of that technology. The, the true disruptive, revolutionary nature of those amazing, compelling, valuable, promising mm. uh, molecular machines that are extremely valuable mm. to scientists, that have extremely high potential, you know, across many different fields, whether it's food, ag, mm. biotech, animals, plants, mm. medicines, biomanufacturing, mm. therapeutics, mm. and the like. Uh, and whether you're a small company, a new startup company, mm. or an idea in someone's mind, or you're a Fortune 50 company mm. that needs to operate globally, mm. you're going to find a way, you know, to navigate the treacherous mm. and unpredictable IP waters, mm. uh, but move on and advance your business and uh, and solve the yeah. world's problems. Yeah. So maybe our closing question is: um, I'm so impressed. I don't know how you find the time. You're not just a journal editor now, but uh, you've you've uh, you've edited books. You're a, a, a prolific conference organizer. You're on, uh, organizing the big CRISPR conference coming up in Lithuania this summer. Also co-organizing the Keystone 2019 conference in somewhere exotic like Vancouver or something next year. Um, so what what are the sort of what's really exciting as you survey the whole CRISPR gene editing space, not just using CRISPR but other types of gene editing tools that are still very much with us. Um, can you give an example of one or two really exciting developments or trends that you see that you hope not only to feature in some of those upcoming meetings, but also in the pages of the CRISPR journal in the months ahead? 
So I'm not going to answer the obvious, okay? Right, because curing genetic disease, okay, everybody knows about that, okay. That's an easy answer, so it's not All right. about. I'm going to I'm going to okay. pass on that one. All right, it's too obvious. Um, in, in many ways, I think I think ag is going to win the CRISPR race, uh-huh. right? Feeding the world, growing population, making it safe and affordable and accessible to all, yeah, is what a lot of the ag companies, the big ag companies, out yeah. there are working on. You know, whether you're Syngenta, Monsanto, Bayer, VSF. Pioneer, Dow, DuPont, and others, uh, you know, they are working very hard at making next-generation crops using non-GMO technologies to solve the food gap that we have moving forward. Uh, so that's something I'm very excited about, but it's happening already. Uh, so maybe that's also a cop-out answer. So, so to me, I tend to, like, maybe look at it from a different prism, different angle, different mm. perspective, different vantage point. Mm. And I really think that that bacteria, we're going to go back to the future with CRISPR, mm-hmm. and it's really using CRISPR in bacteria to eradicate uh, infectious disease mm. and to to alter microbiomes, whether it's in the gut cavity, the oral cavity, the vaginal cavity, mm. or whether it's in dirt and soil, mm. or whether it's in hospital environments, uh, to, to get rid of the bad bacteria once and for all, yeah. address grand challenge of the rise of antibody resistance, yeah. which predictably, if you look at the models, looks very dire. Yeah. Um, and being able to solve that in bacteria using a bacterial immune system and triggering self-targeting and death has a scientific elegance to it. Right. Uh, gets us back to the roots of, you know, the CRISPR story in bacteria. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, then, and then really uh, affords unexpected but very feasible, achievable potential mm. to um, to fight disease right. in, in different ways. And that, that that's what gets me going. It's one of the many things that gets me going besides being an investor, <laughs> an inventor, an author, an And editor, most importantly, yes, teacher, chief editor now. <laughs> critically, the chief editor, the founding editor-in-chief of the Christian So tell, tell the audience, what, what are you looking to attract into the journal as we, as we go through 2018? The first issue is now going to be coming out in a matter of weeks from the, the time that we're recording this. Um, and that's wonderful. Congratulations. What, what, what do you hope for in the, in the, next, in the first year under your, under your editorship? So we want to be inclusive. So if you work on anything CRISPR, hashtag everything CRISPR, we will look at your work. Mm. Uh, whether you're a famous CRISPR scientist praised by the masses, or whether you're the next star or a rising star, uh, regardless of what you work on, whether it's food or ag or therapeutics, whether it's famous bacteria or obscure bacteria, whether it's the tool development, yep. whether, you know, across all fields of science, we, we will take your work and look at it. Yeah. But importantly, as aforementioned, it's not just about the science. Yeah. It's also about the politics, the regulation, yeah. the ethics, yeah. the gene drives, yeah. you know, editing the human germline or not. Yes. <laughs> you know, having an opinion on, on are we going too fast or are we going too slow? Yeah. The ethics, public engagement, yeah. you know, is it GMO and non-GMO? How does it work? Who should do it? Who shouldn't do it? Yeah. When and where and how? And and geopolitically, we are open and we are flexible and we want to be diverse. So, so we'll feature stories, content, whether it's front matter or back matter, whether mm-hmm. it's research, reviews, perspectives, opinions, first cuts. You know, we have a lot of different... Uh, maybe disruptive, you know, new format type uh, content that people can submit to yeah. our journal um, because we have a diversified readership yeah. and our contributors, 
uh, come from many different walks of life and CRISPR, yes. we're going to be as flexible as possible, as open-minded as possible, and, uh, and we'll try to you know, move along with the community wherever the community takes us.